platform. I'm Nicole Hemsoth, co-founder and co-editor and your host for today's episode, which will focus on the evolution of GPU-accelerated computing for molecular dynamics. Here to talk with us about this today is Dr. Jim Phillips. He is a senior research programmer in the NCSA Blue Waters Project Office at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's been the lead developer for the highly scalable Parallel Molecular Dynamics Program, NAMD, since 1999. And some of you will recall he received a Gordon Bell Award for this in 2002. Hi, James. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sure. So give us a history of this code. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with NAMD. Talk about where the idea came up, maybe how people were solving molecular dynamics problems before, and, and where this went over time. So the, I mean, the history of NAMD really uh, even predates me. So this goes back to Professor Klaus Schulten, who was uh, my advisor and later boss at the Beckman Institute where NAMD was developed. And Originally, you know, there were, parallel computing was not the obvious solution to how to do scientific computing. Processors kept getting faster every year. Um, Klaus wanted to do more. He wanted to do larger systems. He wanted to do more realistic scale biomolecular simulations and to prove that this was possible. His advisor, Martin Karplus, um, who recently won the Nobel Prize for this work, was one of the pioneers of molecular dynamics simulation, particularly as applied to small biomolecular systems. Klaus had um, some very ambitious graduate students who actually built their own parallel computer using transputers back in the late 80s in uh, Munich and brought that technology to the United States when he came to the University of Illinois. At the University of Illinois, they pushed that technology. This was, you know, a few, you know, 10 processor class machines. And when I joined his uh, group in 1994, they had just started working with cluster computing. Now, this was before Linux had really taken off. This was before the Beowulf project. They had a cluster of HP 735 workstations with a 100 megabit ATM network. Wow. So optical interconnect <laughs> that his grad students had assembled, and this was an alternative to buying into part of a connection machine from uh, as a collaboration with the University of Illinois. They decided to build their own machine because they found this was much more cost-effective. And so you've got your parallel computer, now you need a code to run on it. Uh, they had started working and trying to port some other codes, and they ended up deciding, okay, this is too hard, we need to write our own, and they wanted to use C++, they wanted to use object-oriented programming, and there was a new computer science professor, uh, Professor Sanjay Kale, who had his char kernel, which later became the Charm++ programming system, that was brought in as a collaborator, uh, based basically by Professor Schulten, and so together, you know, some physics grad students and some computer science grad students got together and wrote this new code that they called NAMD. Um, the name basically means not another molecular dynamics code. Nice. Because there were, <laughs> you know, there, there were other codes that could have been used, and you always have to justify why do you want to do something new. So they, they put this code together, and this was, you know, early days of Charm++. 
early days of C++ even, there was a lot of bad C++ advice that was inherited from the Smalltalk community. And, but they, they made it work and they made it run. And I came in about that time, um, 1994, and I got mostly involved in the NAMD2 rewrite. So the original NAMD was based on um, PVM, so Parallel Virtual Machine, um, which was sort of the, the leading programming method because MPI was also very new at this time. Mm -hmm. And they decided, okay, we're not going to use MP PVM. We're going to go full Charm++, uh, Professor Cullet's technology, and use a few more of the C++ features, so crazy things like you know inheritance and uh, virtual functions, and really re-architect the code. So in the original code, their design was well, we want to virtualize the way things work. So the full machine is, you've got a certain number of processors, but maybe your simulation is better to be composed onto a different larger number of processors. So if you want to run something that you really want to write for, say, you know, 32 processors, but your cluster only has 24, we'll take those 32 processors and sort of schedule them on to the machine that we have. And that worked okay, but load balancing was really hard. So for NAMD2, we took that idea and we broke it up even further. So we said, okay, we've got your atoms and we'll spatially decompose the atoms. And spatial decomposition is sort of the classic scalable method. But then the interactions between those atoms, we can decompose those interactively into a larger number of objects. So then we've got the data decomposed one way, we have the work decomposed independently, and we'll let the Charm++ runtime system with a certain amount of you know, help and optimization from the programmer schedule that work. And that's really the core of how NAMD works, is rather than explicitly assigning all the work to all the processors, we try and offload as much of it at runtime onto load balancers. Now, we have to keep things efficient, but that's basically the design that we started back in 95, 96, and it has evolved from you know, single core processors, you know, a couple hundred nodes, a couple thousand nodes, uh, through the Gordon Bell Award in 2002, and that same design is impressively enough still functioning on you know 20,000 node supercomputers like the Blue Waters system in Illinois as well as GPU accelerated systems. Mm -hmm. So that was that was sort of the the CPU era how we got into GPUs was very much serendipity. So we had been looking there was some serendipity I should say. So NAMD is funded very generously by the National Institutes of Health on a five-year grant, so we sort of have this renewal cycle for our funding. And in 2006, we were putting together one of these, these five-year proposals, and hardware acceleration technologies were becoming available at that time. So we were evaluating as many of them as we could. So there was the MD Grape system from Japan, uh, there was the ClearSpeed processor, we worked with them. FPGAs were an opportunity, and we were working with Professor Wenmei Hu at uh, University of Illinois 
CSC department, as well as we had sort of looked at using graphics processors, but you had to write the code as OpenGL, basically. You had to somehow trick the GPU into rendering the answer that you wanted into a frame buffer and then read those values out. And that's very difficult. So we tried it. I think I managed to you know, copy a little memory back and forth. But the analysis that we had done basically said the GPUs are the only technology that has the commodity marketplace backing it up that will be able to develop over time that will be affordable enough mm-hmm. that you know the users of this program who are you know biomedical scientists many of them experimentalists will be able to afford will be able to run can expect to be available over multiple generations so we put in the proposal and at the uh Supercomputing 2006, I went to a workshop on multi-core programming, and the first paper on CUDA was being presented there. And I was pretty impressed because, okay, they had something that solved all of the programmability issues. It was a first cut, it was a minimum viable product, and you know there were, there were things that you could suggest be, be added, but the fact that it was supported by NVIDIA, who was actually making the project, and this wasn't some outside proof of concept made it very appealing. So I came back and I sort of said, okay, I think I know how we're going to do this. And, you know, I got got a little bit of skepticism. Um, The beginning of uh, 2007, I was coming into work and in the parking garage, I run into Wenmei Hu, who we've been collaborating with on some FPGA work. And he is there with David Kirk, I didn't know him at the time, chief scientist of NVIDIA, and they say, hey, we're going to you know, be teaching a course on CUDA programming. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Can I sit in on that? And he said, sure. Can I bring John Stone? And John came in and asked a lot of questions, but that was basically how we got in on the ground floor of CUDA. And we had our first paper on it in 2007. Um, we had some basic kernels integrated to NAMD at that point. And from that point on, uh, the CUDA model has, of course, continued to evolve, and we have gotten progressively better at incorporating those capabilities into NAMD. So the current state of NAMD that I can tell you is we do many things on the GPU. We do all of the most uh, computational intensive work on the GPU, but the entire algorithm is not offloaded. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is that NAMD is essentially a multi-node parallel program, so we need the CPU involved for moving data back and forth, but also because there are a lot of different uh, methods and algorithms incorporated into NAMD on the CPU side that would be difficult or inefficient to try and port everything to the GPU. So right. it's still very much a hybrid code. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons, uh, sure, one of the reasons molecular dynamics codes in general are interesting is because they they allow certain architectures to really show off. So I was very fascinated early on about what I could find out about the Anton architecture, for instance, from D.E. Shaw, which was a obviously a highly customized architecture for this this type of workload. And 
uh, GPUs are interesting. I like that FPGAs were considered seriously for this. I mean, let's talk about the architectural range of options for molecular dynamics codes in general. Um, you know, are there, is this sort of the settled upon winner, the GPU uh, approach, or are there other things still on the horizon that might accelerate it even more significantly? So the, the Anton architecture is extremely impressive. And the reason is not so much that they were able to put together ASICs to do the molecular dynamics kernels. So the MD Great project from Japan has been doing very similar things. What's impressive about Anton is that they've networked this together with such low latency that even the Anton 1 machine, I think, could do a full parallel Fourier transform across the entire machine in something like 70 nanoseconds, which is less than like a single memory access right. for a CPU. <laughs> and if you're running an algorithm like molecular dynamics, where it is a strictly marching forward in time. So, you know, we start with positions, we start with velocities, and it's a crowded system. You're looking at basically thing, things are vibrating, they're moving more or less stochastically. And in this environment, the molecule carries out some function. So this is, I mean, this is a very you know, slow-moving machine relative to the time scales. If you were doing a simulation of, say, you know, the planets, let's say you happen to launch some sort of a car into space and you want to know where it's going to end up in 3,000 years, you can run that simulation going forward with a small number of degrees of freedom. You can adjust the time steps that you take. You can use very sophisticated integrators. When you have a liquid system like a protein with a lipid membrane, maybe some DNA in water with a little bit of salt in it, that gets you down to a, you know, order one to two, maybe five femtosecond time steps. So you have to take all these time, time steps forward. And in order to get to a microsecond or a millisecond time scale, you're looking at, you know, billions, trillions of these time steps. And the only way you can do that with a naive algorithm moving forward in time is to make those time steps very small. And that is what the Anton machine is absolutely most impressive at, is that they can actually couple all of those processors together that quickly. Right, right. So are, that are, is... Are, mm -hmm. are, are FPGAs still kind of in the running for this, or, or is that off the table because of progress with GPUs? There are people doing work with FPGAs, and this has been the case for a while, I, I don't want to you know, sort of look down too much on a technology that I'm not particularly involved in. So I think there's promise there, but if you will achieve the price performance that's comparable to a GPU is going to be very difficult. They are hard to program. One of the you know, the, the, the issues is that you start out, you know, trying to, to optimize one small kernel, which is the simplest version of the problem that you can make. And you can go through really heroic efforts to optimize something like that on an FPGA or, you know, any, any other device that is, is close to hardware. Then the question is, okay, when you make it more complicated, so you go and you talk to the scientist and they say, oh, okay, now we want to add this other term to the force field. Now we want to do 
this extra calculation, um, the harder it is for someone to program your device, the narrower the domain that it can be used in. And particularly if you know molecular dynamics is important, but molecular dynamics is not all of HPC. So it's hard to build a very general purpose device with that. Sure. And if you look at you know, the marketplace, um, GPUs are the closest we've gotten to a general purpose accelerator. And even they aren't great for every application, even after a decade of development. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to NAMD as a code uh, and GPUs here, help me understand what, what the evolution of GPUs have been over time for, for this particular code. So it was kind of the baseline performance or capability with Kepler generation, and then what did you get out of Pascal? And now you have, obviously, uh, Volta with this tensor core available and high-density machines like we're going to see on supercomputers like Summit, right, with the very fast and V-Link interconnect. I mean, the capabilities are huge. Are you guys ready to take advantage of all of that? Do you still have challenges? And and really, what has that progression been, and is it... Is it a linear upward curve of performance that you've seen from generation to generation? So the GPUs are, are definitely getting extremely fast, and they are continuing to increase in performance. What I will note is that they've been uh, particularly optimizing for machine learning type applications in the last couple of generations. And of course, this, this makes sense, first because there are a lot of optim optimization opportunities available for that. And the tensor core is a particular example. If you can go to low precision arithmetic and optimize one particular operation, I mean, the, the tensor core works exactly as well as it, as it is advertised for that particular type of linear algebra. On the other hand, if you look at the GPU from a more HPC-oriented you know, perspective, the memory bandwidth is not growing at the same rate as the flops are. So this ratio of, you know, flops to bytes is increasing over time, particularly again for these for these lower precision operations. So memory bandwidth for the GPU has been growing at maybe you know fifty percent per generation for the past couple of generations. So if you have a traditional HPC workload that's not well suited to the GPU, you're getting acceleration, but it's sort of growing at the same rate as the CPU technology is. Now, I'm, if someone wishes to disagree with me on that, I'm perfectly happy to yield to them, but that's been my impression. Now, the GPUs still have an absolute advantage over the CPUs in available memory bandwidth. So you've got, in particular, the adoption of HBM technologies on GPUs is well ahead of CPUs, particularly mainstream CPUs, uh, with the exception, for example, KNL. Um, so there are there's there's that dimension which which sort of restricts the usage. And then if you want to build a supercomputer out of this, um, you have to actually look at the communication between nodes. And so a CPU-based machine, GPU-based machine are going to have more or less the same internode interconnect technology. They're running over you know, PCI Express. So the new Summit machine, you have dual rail 
100 gigabit InfiniBand, despite having you know, six voltas per node. So it's a very dense node. And what you have to do over time is the algorithm, not just the code so much, as the algorithms need to adapt to be better suited to the available technology. So, you know, old style computing is only going to get so fast so far if you have something that is very flops intensive, for example, machine learning, that does not require a lot of uh, fine-grained internode communication, you're going to do very well on these very dense machines. Mm -hmm. Now, what I've been saying is if you want to do HPC, you need to look at the balance. So as the GPU gets faster, your bottleneck tends to be on the CPU. And as you move co you know, code from the CPU to the GPU, the code that you're going to move is going to be the most flops intensive code because that's what the GPU is best suited for. And you're going to end up bottlenecked by either integer intensive code or at least not highly vectorizable code on the CPU side or the inter node band interconnect bandwidth or the bandwidth between the CPU and the GPU. Take your pick. <laughs> yep. Right. So there's, there, there's always something. And then, but you know, if you're trying to put a machine together, you don't want a balanced machine. You want, you know, there. if something is on sale, you buy more of it. So you can get a lot of flops out of GPUs. You can do great new kinds of science with those GPUs. So in particular on Summit and other machines, as, you know, the, the scale of the machine gets larger, you can either do larger molecular systems, or you can do better sampling for smaller molecular systems. And the field has made great progress in doing more efficient sampling with less coupling over time. So we have new methods in NAMD, such as milestoning coming out, various methods for steering the simulation to really extract statistical mechanical properties from an ensemble of simulations. And this is very much in the, you know, the vein, I'm sure your listeners have heard of the Folding at Home project, which is using, you know, very low coupling between these replicas. So if you're doing a small simulation and you can run on a single GPU, then you don't care about the bandwidth to the host. You don't care about the bandwidth between the networks. You're going to be able to do a lot of sampling on that machine. If you want to do one very large, very fast simulation, that's when you start looking at something that is closer to a supercomputer as opposed to a cluster or a cloud type machine. Mm -hmm. Also, just out of curiosity, we were talking about that uh, Volta processor at GPU. Um, are you able to do anything with a low precision capabilities uh, using NAMD? Is there, is there anything you can... Uh, shave off to gain efficiencies or or even sort of performance over time with all of these time steps that you have to manage? So the again, the, the half precision is really specialized for linear algebra. Um, molecular dynamics doesn't have a whole lot of that. And in order to conserve energy over time, you need a certain amount of precision. So Molecular dynamics can use single precision on the GPUs, and this is 
something else where especially the consumer GPUs historically have had, you know, as opposed to a CPU, you would have maybe a factor of two difference between single precision and, and double precision performance. On a commercial, uh, sorry, a consumer class GPU, you'd have more like a factor of 10. Right. Whereas an HPC GPU, you'd be back to that factor of two. And this was part of how NVIDIA distinguished their Tesla line from the GeForce line over time. Mm -hmm. um, going to half precision, we really can't. Um, you may even need something like 48 bits of precision in certain parts of the algorithm to have good energy conservation. And energy conservation in molecular dynamics is one of the measures of the accuracy of the simulation. So that's not a particularly interesting feature. Where it does become interesting though is if you can couple machine learning algorithms to your simulation. So for example, if you can use machine learning to predict what region of your you know, domain of interest you should be sampling more, or how you know which configurations you should be running more samples at, having that capability to run machine learning very quickly on the same machine that's doing the simulation is an advantage. So again, that is going to push new ways of doing science. It's not as much of a benefit. Now, if you're doing linear algebra, you can of course look at things like low precision preconditioners with that technology, and I'm sure all of the old papers that were written back in 2007 about how can we use single precision floating point to do better double precision solutions are going to be dusted off and brought back with the half precision on Volta. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I think it's worth another conversation at, at a time we can follow up about the future of machine learning or deep learning for molecular dynamics. It's an interesting uh, question area to explore. I'm afraid I'm not an expert on that. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I, I will find somebody with your help. Um, so Dr. Jim Phillips, uh, again, a senior research programmer at NCSA at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.